0: Hi. You're listening to the Elia Mania podcast. I'm Asma Ibrahim, one of the co-directors of Elia Mania and your host on this podcast. As a platform, we're focused on art, society and culture. So each month, we'll be speaking to an exciting guest willing to give us some insight into their particular field and tell us a bit more about their experiences. We hope you enjoyed our very first episode last month. Today, we've managed to snag the very very exciting Bushra Al-Mutawakkil um okay so for today we've got Bushra with us um i don't want to introduce you because i think uh you you've got so much to say so i'll just i'll just leave it to you do you want to let us know who you are
1: <laughs> oh, uh i'm uh, bushra al-mutawakkil i'm uh, from Yemen. I'm uh, 51 years old. I'm married, 26 years. Um, I'm from North Yemen. My husband is from South Yemen and he's from Aden. I'm from Sanaa. He's from Aden. I have four daughters. I'm a photographer and an artist and currently our family is uh, living in Dubai. Okay, wow. And uh, <laughs> so I mean that's pretty much uh you know a small snippet about me
0: Um, there's, there's so much so hopefully we'll we'll try and get to sort of tease out um a little bit more um so I did a little bit of internet stalking um and I believe you you went to the U.S. to to do your undergrad um and that's where you you Fell in love with photography. Am I right?
1: Yes. Yes. I um I was uh, I went to the U.S. Uh, I got a scholarship to do uh, my undergraduate studies. I had wanted to study architecture, but ended up studying business, international business, uh, at the American University in Washington D.C. And took an elective in black and white uh, basic photography, like a six week summer course and um yeah and then i i fell in love that was my first introduction to photography and i fell in love with it it was like you know on my list of 25 things i wanted to do before i died was to learn photography not necessarily you know mostly just as a hobby you know or as something that i was curious about but it you know turned out to be uh, a passion so
0: how was your experience in in the US at that time because I can imagine it was a a big a big change from Yemen?
1: Uh yes, but I um I mean I went to the US when I was 6. So uh you know, and I lived there for like well almost 6 years and was always going back and forth in the summers and um where I grew up there was like like two blocks away from my university, um, and, you know, very close to the school that I went. So it felt like home. it It didn't it, it was like my second home, so it, it didn't feel unusual, you know, it, mm. I was very very comfortable,
0: yeah, yeah. okay, now that makes sense. um if you'd you'd had that exposure from beforehand. So after you graduated, did you end up going back to Yemen or? what happened yes, then?
1: Um, after I graduated, uh, it was 94. It, the uh, civil war came to an end. So I had to go back. <laughs> My visa ended. And um, yeah, I wasn't very happy about going back. Um, I think I was depressed for maybe three weeks. And then I jumped out of bed and started looking for work. And I found a job. And, you know, and then slowly, I actually I started to really uh, enjoy my life. I mean, I was like in my early 20s. And, you know, then I I met some artists established and up and coming artists. And we'd meet regularly. And then we'd have uh, group exhibitions and workshops and things like that. So it was really, really great. And uh, at the beginning, like I said, it was just a hobby. It wasn't anything. And I was pretty much the only photographer All the others were mostly uh, painters or graphic artists. I was the the only girl photographer. Yeah. How did that feel a little bit uh, in terms of sort of breaking into that space? I didn't think that I was breaking into anything, to be honest. Um, I was just doing what I loved and trying to get better at it. And when we, you know, started having exhibitions, and, you know, I was completely. Uh, happily surprised you know that people wanted to buy my work it was just like a shock actually (laughs) and then slowly people wanted to like hire me for projects especially uh, NGOs and organizations and um, and that was another surprise and then um, and I kept getting so many job offers that I I, after three and a half years, I was working at Amadeus as an educational advisor. I, I quit my job and worked full time for one whole year as a photographer. And it was one of the best times of my life because I got to travel all around Yemen and visit some of the most remote areas. Like, I don't even know how people arrived at these places and um I met fascinating people and learned a lot of new things and it was such a great adventure and it was before having children so you know I could be gone a month two months it was okay so it was lovely it was just just great I can
0: see a massive smile on your face as you say that and <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced when you say it's one of the best times of your life like you seem like you're reminiscing are there, are there any, yes any- I am <laughs> <laughs> are there any particular memories that that really st- sort of stand out and you might be willing to share with us
1: we were like uh, in in tahama uh, i met a little girl called uh, Muhammadah. i'd never heard anybody any girl ever called Muhammadah. and uh and which they were it's like a hundreds old home that was being renovated that was absolutely beautiful there were uh centers you know to uh to educate women about birth control and IUDs and and how they didn't have to be constantly you know just having babies nonstop. uh you know empowering women in that sense by educating them i met uh, another girl fatima who lived in a village like right by uh, al-mahwit but it's like very very difficult to get to but who wanted to become a nurse and she would teach the women in her village like how to read and write uh on an initiative like on her own. like she was just this incredible young woman, like 18, you know, 19. And, uh, and another woman also who a young woman I met also who uh, her and her father had a beehive, like her father entrusted her with everything. She was in charge of the beehive. She was in charge of uh, giving lessons, uh, literacy lessons to the women and girls in the village. And so kind of like stories like that, like, uh, you know, people trying to to make uh, you know, their lives better somehow. And even in the most difficult uh, places to live, uh, they were still doing something. And, uh, and at the forefront, always women, <laughs> like women were the ones who really um, impressed me the most. Uh, and, and I felt who were making the most impact
0: we've definitely seen um a sort of focus on uh women in like in some of your photography um and and sort of a focus on on the portrayal of women um and and sort of i think i i I read, a, I read an article where you said that you were, you were very keen on sort of trying to uh, dispute or, or argue against the stereotypical view of Arab women as you saw them in sort of Western media. And so, and you were trying to challenge that narrative through your own work. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask a little bit about what sort of impassioned you to take on that role and then and, and how, how did you sort of go about doing that and how did that develop?
1: Um well when I was in college we uh we studied you know orientalism and you know how these basically Europeans were you know sitting at their you know studies and and you know maybe having gone a couple of times were um creating these stories about our worlds Uh, as fact and and it wasn't the the full story and you still see that too you know and it's all this idea of that you know okay yes we wear the veil yes um, there is uh, you know the misinterpretation of Islam in my opinion uh, where it may seem women are oppressed yes there is oppression for sure but there's oppression everywhere but there's always this idea of this Arab woman you know she's she's covered, she's all in black, she's oppressed, she's weak. Uh, she's under the thumb of her husband or society, um, when there's really like so much more to that. And, and, and it's like, like they're trying to save us. And, you know, I feel like we can save ourselves. Thank you very much. And yes, women do cover, but some of these women that do cover are amazing. I mean, it's just a piece of cloth or clothing I mean I'm not a supporter of the veil necessarily but I'm a supporter of choice you know you want to wear it you should be able to wear it you don't want to wear it you don't have to wear it you should be allowed uh, to have that choice and um, I find it very arrogant of people of the west to to take it upon themselves to uh, assume you know how we feel as women and to speak for us you know Whereas no, we have our voices and they're loud and clear, and um, and it's not to say there isn't oppression and there isn't abuse and there isn't. It, it's definitely there, but it's everywhere. It's not just. Uh, even you know in America and the UK and it's found everywhere. It's not it's not just something that's that specific to our part of the world just because you can see it on the exterior that we're covered. And just because you're covered, you're you know you may be covered up but your brain is not covered up. I mean I'm not a proponent for the veil, but I I do I mean like for example my mother who's super religious Uh, she feels most comfortable wearing the veil. So it's I feel, who am I or anybody to tell her, no, you should take it off. It's oppressive. It's, uh, you know, you don't need to, it doesn't say that you have to in Islam, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it has nothing to do with religion as much as it does have to do with socialization and kind of what you grew up with and what you're used to and what you're comfortable with. Just like like, for example, in France, and the whole controversy with the with the hijab and the niqab. And, you know, and it's like, political, and it's racist. And, you know, on the one end, there's supposedly these, it's a very free country and whatever, but you can't work in a office uh, a government office if you wear the hijab you have to take it off like it's very ironic it's like freedom but only on their terms which to me is not true freedom but it's always this idea of women being told what to wear like in our world it's you know these islamic brothers or you know the brotherhood or whatever enforcing you know or some families making their daughters wear the niqab or the hijab if they don't want to and in the west they're like making you take it off it's like (laughs) but i still feel it's like this male force that's telling you as a woman what to do and it's like i want to say just f off you know let them or if i want to wear a bikini i'm going to wear a bikini if i want to wear a niqab and be covered from head to toe that should be my choice as well You don't have to like it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, irony has been lost on many of us when we see um, the kind of extremes that some countries are reaching. I'm sure you might have heard Belgium, I believe, um, also was sort of following French footsteps steps and I think the hijab was being banned from higher education that was that was a really shocking move for me when I think it was last year or the year before I was really really shocked by that and um, the fact that this was you know, this, especially when you think about the fact that the first university as an institution was started up by a Muslim Arab woman um, it's just genuinely mind-blowing
1: <laughs>
0: we're in uh, in Belgium uh, you mean as in the first university that I was talking about yeah just like the university as as an institution, the very first one ah, was created a, by a woman, a, an Arab Muslim woman specifically. Wow, it's I did a, not know little, that.
1: Okay,
0: well there you go, something to be proud of because I feel Definitely. that um, it's knowledge that people don't quite realize, or it almost feels as if now I guess that higher education is sort of generally focused in the West, where that's supposed to be where the best schools are. Um, it's also really easy to forget that where they really began was in the Middle East. And so the oldest running university until now I believe is in Morocco. Wow, I had no idea. Exactly. Be proud. And and that's why I say, you know, it was just the, the irony really it was just it was astonishing, you know. The fact how far have we come away from the origin and, and time and that's just totally eroded. It's just it's really frustrating actually.
1: It is. It is. And this like focus on the female body and um, what and how they should be covered up. And it's just so trivial when they, you know, instead of focusing on truly important things, you know, like education or the economy or coronavirus or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it's just, I think it's this idea of just wanting always to control women you know we're the source of life we you know and yet in spite of that like every human being came out of a mother and yet women uh, or mothers are at the bottom of the ladder like you know they're basically unpaid slaves you know i mean on un- unappreciated on un- you know, I I always hate the question, whether it's asked to me or other women who have children, like, oh, so what do you do? Like, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm like, oh, so you don't work. And you're like, excuse me? (laughs) Like, you know, mothers, their work never stops. And yet they're, it's not seen in in high regard. If you say, oh, I have a doctorate and blah, 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 like you're, oh, wow. But uh, I have a doctorate in being a mother, you know, taking care of four kids or it's completely uh it's like it's nothing and 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 i always ask myself why is that and so and that's one of the series i'm working on is motherhood like why is is motherhood seen as like such a low ranking it's like almost looked down upon you know it's uh when it should be so highly revered i mean everybody came out of a mother everybody
0: you know i have a I'm really glad that you mentioned this because I have an absolute bone to pick with people who sort of don't consider motherhood to be like you're saying as as something, you know, worthy or or important or of no or almost um, as if, if, if a mother isn't working, then that's an issue. Um, I think it's totally unfair because, like you said, being a mother, it's a full time job. It's a full time job with overtime, with no work life balance and with no salary, in a sense, Um, is a huge commitment. And actually taking on a job, a full time job or even working part time as a mother, that's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Um, And Absolutely. No one should be felt, you know, to think that they're not doing enough or they're not, you know, they shouldn't be made to feel almost inferior because they're not juggling everything exactly. and a job exactly. i'm like that's absurd um exactly. i don't think that's that's absolutely what anyone can consider feminism um so and yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you're going to produce on that topic actually <laughs>
1: well for me it's like i i want to uh elevate mothers to the status of like sainthood or you know like that's something that is like
0: precious. I completely agree with that. Motherhood is is pretty much on that level, I'd say. Uh, underappreciated, absolutely.
1: Imagine if men had the babies. Like It would be like, you know, it would be something else. It would be like huge. <laughs> it would be it's, a real, uh, you know, caliber and real status and, you know, but for us, it's, it's just very, I find it so bizarre from, from the males, you know from society, from you know. And I think to some extent,
0: uh, it's an issue of when the people that call the shots are all or tend to be overwhelmingly male,
1: they exactly. sort
0: of overlook. female experience or they don't they don't it's not even deliberate so to speak it's just ignorance it's just not being aware of things that means you know for example like we had the issue of the tampon tax in the uk which has finally been abolished because tampons are considered a luxury Uh, and you know no woman would tell you that a tampon is a luxury that you know who is making the decisions um things like that and i think it's absolutely um a problem when there is there isn't enough sort of uh, I don't know I guess like ha- having women on the stage at the top is always important because you need the the perspective you need it's you need that like, insight. Absolutely.
1: yeah it was just like on um that book uh lean lean in by Cheryl I can't remember her last name she's the CFO of Facebook but uh, she used to work, uh, I believe, at uh, or I think it, I think when she was at Facebook, I can't remember exactly. But she was pregnant and she had a meeting and she couldn't find parking, so was, she was like running and was late to the meeting and you know was heaving and puffing and and then somebody said to her, you know, uh, you know, she told them why she was late because the parking was far away, and then somebody said to her, oh, you know, at Google they have they have parking for pregnant women, like right by the door, like you you would have for handicapped people. And she's like, really? And then, you know, she went to the, the her bosses and, and was like, you know, angrily, like, why don't we have parking, you know, for, for pregnant women or women with children? And they're like, yeah, sure. No, no problem. And it wasn't you know, out of like, they didn't care. They just, like you said, they it was something that for them, you know, it wasn't an issue because they didn't have to experience it. And, you know, so that's why it's so important to have more women in, in places of leadership and power that can provide that perspective because the men, like you said, you know, um, sometimes it's not that they mean to, they just don't know any better.
0: Exactly, exactly, Absolutely. And um, on just backtracking a little bit, um, you mentioned you have four daughters. I was just kind of curious um, for you making that transition, um, sort of, so were, were you working full-time before you had your
1: daughters? First, uh, I worked full-time one year as a photographer. And then uh, my husband got a Fulbright scholarship. We went to the US and I worked at the Yemeni embassy <laughs> as a cultural affairs consultant. And then right before leaving, I got pregnant with my first child and I did not work, I think, for two years. And then I worked for Talalim Asuswa at the Ministry of Human Rights on women's issues. And um, yeah, and then I went back to doing photography and then I kept doing photography even as I kept having children. I mean, I, w- I was taking commissions, but I was also doing my own personal conceptual fine art work. Wow! And, and I had a, I had a lot of help, of course. <laughs> Thank God, like in Yemen, you know, I have my my mother, my in laws. I had a nanny. I had like, you know, there was a lot of support.
0: Yeah, absolutely, so important. And and for you, d- did
1: that experience
0: change things for you? Like having children, did that sort of impacts your your sort of day to day, like. And, and managing uh whatever else you were sort of working on the side uh, was it sort of impacting perhaps your, your creative outlets your photography to some extent as well
1: uh it affected me yeah in many ways i mean not getting enough sleep <laughs> um it enriched my life on so many levels you know it's, you know i think it's a cliche, you probably must, you know, heard it many times, like I experienced love like I'd never experienced before. Um, I definitely uh, affected my work, my, my, uh, one of my most uh, well-known works involved, well, initially, I wanted to involve all my daughters, but it proved to be impossible (laughs) because they were little. So um, my six-year-old Shaden was in it, and and this piece was like, you know, it was bought by the British Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, by the Bergeel Foundations and many other uh, uh, collectors and institutions. So, so yeah, they, they definitely affected my life in, in many ways. Yeah, and made me also like this idea of, you know, feeling uh, like you're kind of a second class citizen because you're a mother or you're you. You know, it it just made me see the importance of mothers and what they do and how, you know, uh, I don't know, I read like if a mother was paid for all the things she she does, like because, you know, she's a she's a nurse, she's a chauffeur, she's a cook, she's a teacher, she's you name it, like she plays so many roles like she would make like at least a 100 something thousand dollars a year, you know, if she were paid for what she did. So it definitely it definitely did affect me in the way that I think, and it's affected my photography because I've included my kids in my photography, and also the subject of motherhood is something I'm very keen on uh, covering or you know doing stuff about. So yes,
0: I've seen some really lovely photos that you've been posting of your daughters on Instagram. Yeah, they're it's, definitely it's really uh,
1: they're they're great. Um, you know, when I need to photograph someone or something and I have a deadline for some like they're always my like my subjects, like they're always, you know, willingly or unwillingly uh my models.
0: That's really sweet. That's really sweet. I, I remember you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit about um sort of the heritage of Yemen, um and, and sort of the, the artistic and cultural heritage of Yemen, um and how that's sort of being preserved or or perhaps the sort of challenges that are coming to that considering the current situation Um, and so I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about that sort of where do you fit yourself in there and, 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 and how do you see the current situation impacting the that sort of artistic cultural scene.
1: Uh, well, I mean, Yemen, you know, is you know, is very rich in culture and heritage. And it's like a like a living museum. I mean, I was born in the old city and my mother was born in the old city and my grandfather, my great grandfather, I mean, it's an incredible place. It isn't just the old city of Sana'a, you know, there's Hadramul, there's places in Aden, there's, uh, you know, Shibam, the two Shibams. I mean, there's, it's just such a rich place. And, and yes, the war or attack on Yemen, so to speak, has definitely affected. I mean, part of our heritage that will never, will be gone forever, you know. Um, and that's, you know, I, I don't even know how they could ra- repatriate something like that. But even before the war, uh, Yemen, or especially, well, I can talk about Sana'a for sure. Um, A lot of the houses uh, are dilapidating, they're falling apart. and, And the government doesn't do anything or didn't do anything until like, the house is literally about to fall apart. So there isn't this real like care or maybe funding or vision on how to, um, you know, keep it together and preserve it and take care of it as it needs to be. Uh, cause it's so precious, you know, and it's so unique and it's, I mean, the things that we have are like nowhere else in the world. I mean, it's uh, it's just, it's a tragedy. I mean, I have a friend who works specifically in Sana'a to raise funds and to try to, uh, She documents like uh, buildings that are falling apart and tries to get uh, raised funds to to um, restore these buildings. And so, yeah, it's it's something very, very important. But the problem is, when you know, people are dealing with bombs and no food, no shelter. You know, that's the last thing they think about, obviously. So unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I remember hearing, for example, that there were floods um, that were damaging uh, parts of the old city and, and the Arctic yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's really tragic. Like you said, it's really, really sad. And unfortunately, it's not necessarily a priority in the current situation to look after them. Um, but it's like there are so many unique and wonderful things uh you know architecture but you know other things as well historical artifacts I think I've heard there's been looting um of historical artifacts because of the sort of I guess like not so secure situation um which is just it's just a real shame all around it is it is on a Slightly unrelated note, if you don't mind. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I think the project was called What If? Um, so where you had women dressing up in sort of traditional male clothing. And it's, it's one of my favorite works um, from the, from what I've seen. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about it. Uh,
1: this it, it wasn't really, I mean, it was called just what they were wearing, like ghatra, uh, uh, gummies, a jewel. It wasn't. A, I just named it based on what they were wearing. How How did that sort
0: of come about? Because I think it's interesting in the sense that um, when people think about how women dress, they don't also consider the fact that in traditional, traditional sort of Middle Eastern clothing, so to speak, men's clothing is just as modest. Um, exactly. And I thought this sort this really showed it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's that was my thinking as well. Um, because I'd been so focused on women, and then somehow noticed the men's clothing. Like, oh my God, wait a minute! Like, the men also wear long, loose clothing, and they wear a sirwal underneath. Normally, they have a head covering. Um, you know, sometimes it just shows the face in some cases. So I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I mean, it it isn't just the women. I mean, traditionally, also the men dressed very uh, conservatively, and to the point that I felt the women could wear the men's clothing, and it would be okay. (laughs) I mean, it would, it would, you know, check all the things like, "Oh, head covered, body not showing," you know. Um, And then it also symbolized, you know, something else, you know, this idea of, you know, women being powerful and strong and could do whatever men could do, maybe even do it better. (laughs) You know, and actually, I was hoping I never got to finish it, but I was hoping to do it. And I mean, this is like Yemeni and then Khaliji, but also the Jordanians dress like that as well. And some Palestinians. I was hoping to do other countries you know like Sudan and Egypt and and we'll see hopefully I'll continue with that. What what
0: were reactions to it because I'm imagining that like male and female reactions were quite different.
1: Yeah men did not react very well I mean even my brother I remember I had a one of them I had one of the pictures blown up really big and it was in my D1 you know we chugat and whatever and he was just like so repulsed by the photo um because there's a saying i don't know if it's quranic or it's hadith and something to the effect that you know that it's really bad you know if a man tries to um you know take on the qualities that are female and vice versa if the woman tries to be emasculate herself or that that that's very frowned upon or I have to I have to I need to write these things down because I have the worst memory um, if it's a hadith or it's in the Quran or I, I, I think it's a hadith. So he took it from that end that he just it was just so, you know, it rubbed him the wrong way <laughs> as I think it rubs a lot of like typical Yemeni men or Arab men the wrong way as well. I mean they miss the point. even this one, the what if, you know, where the woman, Woman, uh, the woman slowly becomes unveiled as the man becomes veiled. That's the one. That's that's what if uh, a lot of I mean, a lot of women loved it. So even women that wore the niqab, they're like, oh my yeah. god, it's so good. So they can see how we feel, you know? Yeah. And uh, and men uh, were so they objected to it. I mean, even like highly educated men, like men that were educated in the West. Like I had an argument with like this doctor he's like what are you trying to say like we should be women you know this is what god said that you know it's the oh, women gosh. that need to cover and blah 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 and i said to him it's this is it's humorous you can't you see the humor in this it, it it's ironic it's funny it's you know yeah like don't take yeah, yourself yeah. so seriously like chill out man <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> No,
0: I think they're very witty I do, I do like them I think they're very very witty um, Thank you. I think it's a shame sometimes people do miss the point a little bit um,
1: exactly exactly <laughs>
0: And they're, they're really lovely uh, I'm a huge fan honestly and I think I'm not the only one here and um, so at this point I guess I'm I'm gonna leave you the floor the, I'm gonna leave you the stage so if there's anything sort of you want to uh, say if there's a message you want to leave behind with the audience anything at all and um, this is your moment
1: i stopped working for uh, a long time um for like maybe six years i wasn't producing anything and um uh and it was like due to uh mental illness like i'm bipolar and i didn't know i was bipolar and then i was diagnosed and uh so i um so that's my new this the one of well, my latest but one that i'm really focusing on is on um mental health but i don't want to call it that uh the title you know because people think of mental health and they like you know shy away or uh and i can only imagine in yemen how many people are suffering from mental health and trauma and especially with this war uh, and how much, you know, healing or working uh, they're going to have to do to to deal with it, especially the children. And, and um, yeah, so that's, that's something that I'm working on and hoping to you know, to, I mean, I'm not myself just doing this. Other people are doing it too. But for me also to, to help to remove the stigma of mental health and be able to like talk about it, to deal with it, to, because everybody suffers from one. I mean, there's a spectrum of course, but everybody has their issues and their problems and um, some more than others. And, um, um, the other thing is like, I'm so impressed with like all the young generation. I mean, like yourself and others, and especially the girls, the young women and what they're doing. And uh, it's really very powerful and inspiring. And I'm just, cause like when I started out doing my I, I was literally the only one. <laughs> I mean, there were even few, very few men doing photography. So uh now I mean I see women in photography and film and design and Yemeni women and uh you know doing stuff like you're doing and all these different uh like podcasts uh celebrating women you know Yemen and Yemenis around the world and and uh yeah I'm just I'm so I'm so proud to be a Yemeni. I'm so proud of my my older Yemeni sisters and my younger Yemeni sisters and um, Yemeni men also but uh, but especially women and you know for them to keep going and doing what they're doing in social media I mean you know the digital age has just made it so possible to reach so many more people to have such a bigger audience and yeah and uh, and maybe I don't know, hopefully one day I, I pray, I'm always thinking like just you know, dreaming of this like utopia of this war ending and all these amazing Yemeni people can go back and rebuild Yemen and of course, it's a far-fetched dream, but you know <laughs> nothing is impossible. so
0: that was really touching. That was really, really <laughs> lovely. Uh, thank you so much and mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're so happy to have you today. And that brings us to the end of our second episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, And we'll see you next month.